Luke 11, verse 1 reads, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now imagine that request, teach us to pray. It wasn't that they had never prayed. Jewish people prayed frequently. But as they observed the prayer life of Jesus, they felt that they were merely beginners in the school of prayer, and they had so much to learn. Now, if you've been trekking with us in Luke's gospel up until now, you've probably noted several times that Jesus was engaged in prayer. And certainly those aren't the only times. We get the idea that prayer was just a regular part of his everyday routine. For instance, Luke 3, 21. And as he was praying, heaven was open. Luke 5, 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. Often he did. And prayed, it says. Luke 6, 12 says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the whole night praying to God. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he began to probe their understanding of who he really was and who the crowds were saying that he was. And then in Luke 9, 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So they had seen him pray many times. And by the way, as we continue to study through Luke, Luke, we're going to see him praying many more times. But here's the point. They saw a correlation between the prayer life of Jesus and the power of Jesus in ministry. They saw a correlation between the prayer life of Jesus and the incredible peace that he had, even in the midst of stressful situations. And so no wonder they came and said, Lord, would you teach us to pray And the implication is, like you pray. A major magazine conducted a poll some time back of the American people and asked what subject they wanted to hear about most when they went to church. And the number one request was how to make prayer more effective. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus, you probably feel like you're just getting started, and there's so much to learn when it comes to prayer. I certainly feel that way. And so if you're like me, you're eager to learn what Jesus has to teach in this vital area. So let's dive in, and let's look at these first verses here of Luke chapter 11 and see what we can learn about the power and the peace that we can gain through effective prayer. First of all, Jesus gave a pattern for prayer to teach his disciples to pray personally. And the main idea I want to impress on us here is that prayer is meant to be an an intensely personal thing. Let's look at verse 2. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, you notice two or three things right away. First of all, if you're familiar with Matthew's version of this prayer, you see immediately that this one is very different. I'll say a bit more about that later. 
But we know this as the Our Father or as the Lord's Prayer. But you know what? It's really not the Lord's Prayer. It would be more appropriate to call it the Disciples' Prayer. It's really meant to be a model prayer. And a, a, a lot of people just repeat this prayer by rote over and over. And I don't think that's what it was meant for. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with praying this prayer on occasion, especially when you're really thinking about what it means. I love to pray the Lord's Prayer around a graveside during a graveside service. I've found that there's something incredibly powerful that God does when people of faith have just had an incredible loss and they're grieving horribly and hurting, and then we all pray this amazing prayer together. It brings such healing and hope, and it focuses on the future of what God is doing. It's wonderful. But there's very little value in just repeating it over and over and over again if you're not paying attention to its content. When you get a card in the mail from someone you recognize, someone who loves you, maybe you really love them too, could be a family member, friend, coworker. What do you look at right away? Do you look at that pre-made poem that's been printed in there by the company, the card company? You know, maybe a poem by Helen Steiner Rice or someone else real flowery and everything. Is that what you like the most? Or do you immediately go to those two or three lines that your friend has scribbled down at the bottom? Oh, I, I don't care about the poem so much. I read it. But I want to know personally what my friend or family member has to say. It's a meaningful expression directly from their heart. And when we pray, God wants a personal relationship with us. Not just some formal acknowledgement that he exists. So Jesus isn't giving us this as a rigid form that we have to pray by rote. Rather, it's a guideline. And so I want us to notice several things about it here that I think are real important if we're going to pray more effectively. First, he said, when you pray, say, Father. So, if someone begins their prayer and they say, Our Mother who art in heaven, or Sophia, or Eternal Well, or Great Spirit in the Sky... I think it's pretty safe to conclude that Jesus is not the Lord of their life. Why would you say that, Pastor? Because Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple now, I'm going to teach you how to pray. And if you're really following me, I want you to address God as Father. And that is certainly the designation that Jesus used as he prayed to God during his ministry and time on earth. Now, notice that we're instructed to address God directly in this prayer. Many people in the world today try to get to God through others, through mediators. And I kind of understand the reasoning they give. They say, well, if you really want to get to someone, isn't the mother of that person a good mediator? Or someone who was a close friend or follower or associate, wouldn't they be a good go-between? I get the reasoning. But the problem with that is that nowhere in Scripture are we ever told to try to get to God through the mother of Jesus or through a saint that's died or through 
uh, a close friend of the Lord who's passed on. Prayer was meant to be a personal communication between God the Father and his created beings. I like what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says there's one God and one mediator, one, between God and men. Who is it? The man Christ Jesus. So we go to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say, when you pray, say, hallowed be your name. A young boy from New Haven, Connecticut was struggling to memorize the Lord's Prayer. And his minister overheard him. And he realized that the boy was saying, our father who are in New Haven, how do you know my name? And the minister smiled and complimented the boy on his theology. And he said, look, you've embraced two of the most important things in prayer. That God is near and that he really does know our name. In fact, he knows everything about us. And his name is to be hallowed. Now, I'll bet that's not a word you use every day, hallowed. It means revered or respected. And so as you pray, he's not your buddy upstairs. He's not the big guy up there. His name is to be respected. And so I like to go to God and start by saying, God, you are so awesome. You are holy beyond description. You are holy other, so different. I can't even fathom you. Thank you that you, the holy almighty God, would want to commune with me. Hallowed be your name. And he goes on to say, your kingdom come. Jesus told us to pray for the kingdom to come. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament... God's kingdom was primarily expressed through the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, God's kingdom work is primarily expressed through the church, through the true followers of Jesus. And in the future, there's going to be a kingdom also. The Bible says there's going to be a day coming when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And God's kingdom work will be happening in a way that we can't even now imagine or fathom. And so when we pray for your kingdom to come, we're not just praying for that future kingdom, we're praying for God's will to be done right now in his people, just as it is in heaven. So let me ask you, do you ever pray for the church? I have a list of people that I pray for regularly, and I'm very strategic about that. I pray for our leaders regularly. I pray that God would raise up new leaders and more leaders because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I pray for people in our church who are struggling. Maybe they have cancer or an illness of some kind. Maybe their health is breaking or they're going through a particularly hard season. I pray for marriages that are on the rocks. Couples who are struggling desperately and, and wondering if they can ever be reconciled and have a healthy marriage in the future. And of course, I pray for my own family regularly, that God would continue to lavish his grace on our family. Pray, Lord, your kingdom come, that your rule would be happening right here and now, and we would represent you the way you want us to. Then Jesus said, look, give us each day our daily bread. I think obviously he intended for us to pray every day. He doesn't say, give us this week all the things we need. We're to pray for daily bread. 
So here's a challenge. Maybe you're already in the habit of this. That's wonderful. But if not, I would challenge you every day, in the morning if possible, maybe even before you leave your house, to just begin to pray. You might want to get in a posture of kneeling. Get on your knees. That's kind of a, a very reverential posture, I think, for prayer. And I often like to get on my knees. It's not the only posture. Sometimes I walk. Sometimes I stand. Sometimes I lie flat on the floor. Sometimes I pray when I'm driving. You need prayer around here when you're driving. I want to tell you with some of the drivers out there. Amen? And so there's all kinds of postures, but I would urge you to pray early in the morning when you get up and commit your day to God. God, as I get on the road today, it's crazy out there. I know it's going to be kind of that morning rush hour. Help me to not lose my sanctification before I get to work when somebody cuts me off. And Father, as I meet with that representative today from out of town, I know, as far as I know, she doesn't have any relationship with you. Would you allow me to represent you well? And Father, that, that employee that I'm mentoring, help me to have patience there. And help me today just to do everything I do as though I'm working for you, not for some boss or something. That's good scripture, Colossians 3.23. And Lord, when I get back home today, boy, that's when the real work begins. These are the people that are most important to me, not my coworkers. So help me, Lord, to decompress from the day's pressure and to come home with a gracious spirit and help me to bring my best home with me, to be at my best. And Lord, when I go to that Little League game tonight, Help me to be encouraging to my child, not have a critical spirit. Give me today my daily needs. And then Jesus makes a really provocative statement in verse 4. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, isn't that interesting? When you became a Christian, you were given the forgiveness of sins. But daily, daily we ought to come to God and confess where we've fallen short. I like that little cartoon of Dennis the Menace kneeling at his bedside, hands folded, looking up to heaven. And he says, I'm here to turn myself in. And we ought to turn ourselves in every day. Every day confess, Lord, I've fallen short of your standards and your glory. Thank you that the blood of Christ cleanses me of all of this sin. Now notice something critical here. Our repentance and our forgiveness is linked, Jesus said, with a forgiving attitude that we display toward others. Now, please don't misunderstand this. This is so important. It's not that we earn our forgiveness by practicing forgiveness. I don't think that's the meaning at all. We don't earn our forgiveness by forgiving others. But if we don't have a forgiving attitude toward other people... I think it's doubtful that we fully accepted God's forgiveness ourselves. Let me put it to you this way. I've noticed something about real Christians. When you've really been forgiven by God and you know it, you're pretty quick to forgive others. You can just write that down. When you have received the transforming grace of God, you're pretty free in giving grace to others when they wrong you or let you down. So pray, Lord, forgive me as I forgive others. 
Help me to not hold a grudge, not against that teacher who mistreated my child, not against my ex-mate who slandered me and continues to slander me. Help me to remember how much I've been forgiven and to always be willing to forgive others. And lead us not into temptation. Lord, you know my every area of weakness. Help me not to encounter more temptation to jealousy or lust or greed or cynicism today than I can bear. This model prayer is very short. Would you agree? In Luke's gospel, it's about 34 words. You can read that in about 20 seconds. Now, there are times when longer prayers are appropriate. Some of you have a gift of intercession, and you can pray rather easily for long periods of time. My, how we need that gift in the church today. So many people, so many situations where we need someone to stand in the gap as an intercessor and pray. But please, please hear this. If you're not one of those people and you struggle in prayer and your prayers are a whole lot shorter, don't feel guilty about that. It's not the length of the prayer that makes it effective or powerful. Remember the Old Testament? When Elijah, the prophet, called a prayer showdown with the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Remember that story? And these false prophets, they're up early, early in the morning. And they start praying loudly to Baal. And they pray all day long. And they're intense in their prayers from dawn till dusk. Nothing happens. Elijah comes. And in the Bible, this prayer is recorded in two simple verses, about a 30-second prayer. And he prays the shortest prayer, and the Bible says the fire fell on that altar. You see, it wasn't the length of the prayer, it was the one to whom he was praying that made all the difference. Prayers can be short and very effective. When Peter was sinking in the Sea of Galilee, he prayed, Lord, help me. Three words. But boy, was that prayer effective. Jesus said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I would urge you to keep prayed up, so to speak. Keep short accounts with God. Pray frequently. Pray without ceasing. When Debbie and I, when our relationship is at its best, and we're having great communication and relationship with one another, uh, we can call each other on the phone and just talk for a couple of minutes and just handle the situation. Everything's fine, and we just move on. It does, every conversation doesn't have to be a long one. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. So Jesus taught us to pray personally. But let's quickly move on. 
Secondly, as we read on here, Jesus gave them an interesting parable about prayer to teach them to pray boldly. Verse 5. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Now notice that effective prayer begins with this sense of inadequacy. This man said to his neighbor, look, I'm desperate. I've got a guest here, and I've got nothing to feed him. And when we come to God, we come humbly and say, Lord, my cupboard is bare. I need more strength, God. I need more patience. I need more power. I need more understanding. I need more sensitivity, Lord. I can't do this on my own. How different that is from the attitude of a proud person who thinks they're self-sufficient. Charles Spurgeon once said, asking is the rule of the kingdom. And it is. God's invited us to ask. But this man's neighbor did not respond favorably. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Now culturally, you need to understand that many of the homes had just a couple of rooms. And almost every family had a handful of farm animals. Chickens, uh, they might have had a few sheep, a few goats possibly, just a few little farm animals. And at night, they would bring the smaller animals at least into one of those rooms for their protection. And all the family slept in the other room. So get this picture, it's pretty crowded, right? You got animals in one room, and you got mom, dad, children in the other room. And they may be sleeping in pallets on the floor or two or three beds, but they're all just trying to make this work. And so if anybody got up after everybody was settled down, guess what? It made a ruckus. So this guy, I envision him whispering through the window, look, man, I can't get up. We finally just got all the kids to sleep. The animals are finally settled down. If I get up and remove that bar from this door, it's going to be really loud. And then the chickens are going to start clucking. The dogs are going to start barking. The kids are going to want another drink of water. And then they're going to have to go to the bathroom again. And we'll never get them to sleep again. Go away, man. Come back in the morning. And I understand his frustration. You know what? Prayer can sometimes be a disappointing experience. Have you discovered that? You pray and you don't get the answer you want immediately. I've prayed for children to be healed and they weren't. I've prayed for people to respond to the gospel and they didn't. I've prayed for certain people to lose elections and they won. I've prayed for others to win elections and they lost. Prayer can be disappointing. Someone said God answers prayer in four ways. Four ways. Yes, no, wait, and you've got to be kidding me. And this neighbor said, you've got to be kidding me. I'm not going to get up and give you something to eat. It's midnight, man. Come back in the morning. Verse 8 reads, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread... 
because he's his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I'd like for you to underscore that word boldness, because I think that's the main point. You see, most of us would have been too timid to even go to our neighbor at midnight and request three loaves of bread. That's outrageous. And we certainly wouldn't have kept on knocking. We would have been afraid afraid our neighbor would have gotten really upset with us. So Jesus' point is that God wants us to be bold and persistent with our prayers. Now let's be clear. Jesus is not comparing God here, God the Father, to a grouchy neighbor. What he's saying is, look, if a reluctant neighbor will grant an unreasonable request, how much more? Will a loving father respond to sincere petitions? Because he is the God who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You know, one of the saddest episodes in Scripture to me is when Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth. You read this in the Gospels. And you know what it says about that? Here he is, his ministry is launched. He's now going around preaching the word of God. He... God's doing amazing things through the ministry of Jesus. And he goes back to Nazareth and it says he could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Isn't that sad to you? And you know what? I wonder how many spectacular things God wants to do in our lives, but we just don't ask. We're just kind of skeptical. We just kind of hold back and never really make the request because we're just a little too timid. James writes in James 4 verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. Folks, God has unlimited resources and he wants to respond favorably, but we need to ask in boldness. The poet said, thou art coming to a king, Large petitions with thee bring, for his strength and power are such that thou canst never ask for too much. Jesus is teaching us here to pray personally and to pray boldly. But there's one final emphasis I want us to consider together, and that is that we pray expectantly. Jesus gives a promise here that I find pretty audacious. It's pretty amazing, really. And he's teaching us to pray expectantly. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is saying, look, pray in a spirit of anticipation that there will be a positive response. No request will go ignored. No search will come up empty. No knock will be unanswered. Now, the Greek verbs here are really interesting. They're in the present imperative tense and mood. Here's what that means. This is, first of all, a command. It's in the imperative mood. We're to... We're commanded to pray this way. But to me, what's really interesting is this is not punctiliar action. This is continuous action in the present. 
In other words, we're to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Pray without ceasing. Just to keep that communication with God going. Jesus talked about abiding in him in John 15. He said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I don't think that means God will answer every prayer in exactly the way we make the request. But it does say that he will answer the prayer according to his will. And then Jesus gives this helpful analogy here, finally, in verses 11 through 13. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is reasoning here from the lesser to the greater. If an imperfect earthly father wants to give good gifts to his children, how much more will your heavenly father, who's perfect, want to give you good gifts? And the key phrase here is good gifts. God wants to give you good gifts, not things that will hurt you. If your daughter says, Daddy, can I have a diamondback rattlesnake for my birthday? Eh, you're probably going to give her a goldfish or uh, some pet that's a little bit safer. And if your 16-year-old son says, Dad, could I have a brand new Lamborghini for my birthday? You're probably going to give him a used Toyota, right? Right? But God wants to give good gifts. He knows what's best. He knows the future. He knows us inside and out. And he desires to bless us indeed. Now I want to close today by sharing just a couple of examples of answered prayer. Because when I read passages like this one that we're studying today, I got to tell you, it stokes my faith. It makes me want to be more effective in prayer. It makes me to want to make prayer a higher priority in my life than it already is. And so I want to share a couple of examples, one of just kind of a normal answer to prayer that affected a number of people, and then a second one from history that's an answer to prayer that affected, really, the entire world. Now the first story. Rhonda Hotelling of our church family many years ago was distressed. This is in the earliest days of grace. We were just a tiny little church meeting in a storefront. She was distressed because her husband, Frank, was, was not a Christian. And she had come to know Christ and she was flourishing in her relationship with Christ. And they had a young, growing family and she wanted her husband to know the Lord like she did. And so she asked Debbie and me to pray and we did. And we talked to her and comforted her and we prayed with her and for her and we prayed that Frank would be saved. And in her small group, she had members of her small group praying for her husband Frank to be saved. But Frank had no interest whatsoever. 
He was antagonistic to the gospel. He wanted nothing to do with Christ or the church. And at times, he, he could really, really be hostile about it. But she kept on praying, and we all kept on praying for Frank. And through the years, God began to soften his heart, and gradually God broke through. Frank was saved. And then he began to grow in his relationship with Christ. And then he sensed a call to ministry. He went to seminary and got a seminary degree. And today he is a pastor in South Carolina faithfully serving the Lord. Now I think that's the way prayer normally works. It's not something super dramatic. There were no bells and whistles, no thunder from heaven, no lightning bolts. We just say, Lord, there's a need here. Would you open a door of salvation for Frank? And over time, God did. And he did it in a very undramatic and yet in a very real way. Archbishop William Temple said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't pray, coincidences don't happen. It's just amazing. And now for a more dramatic answer to prayer. In May of 1940, Hitler had just stormed across Europe. And many were hoping that France, he might get stalled there and the French army might be able to stop him. But France was overcome in about 40 days. And there were a half a million British and French soldiers and a few other uh, countries kind of thrown in there, kind of stuck right against the English Channel in this little enclave of a settlement called Dunkirk. Hitler's armored forces were just 15 miles away, and these soldiers were already being bombarded from the air. And they faced certain annihilation. If they were captured, they would at best be imprisoned, at worst be executed. It was a dark, dark day. Some British leaders began to talk about cutting a deal with Hitler. But on May the 24th, 1940, the churches of the UK called for a national day of prayer. And it was endorsed by editorialists and politicians and by King George IV himself. And so on May the 26th, a national day of prayer was set. And church attendance skyrocketed as people came from all over and packed out churches and prayed fervently to God that God would somehow spare their husbands, their sons, their fathers who were trapped at Dunkirk. Former Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain wrote in his diary, May 26, blackest day of all. But you know what? Because they were praying boldly to God for intervention, it actually turned out to be the turning point of the war. Because on that day, at 7 p.m., a critical order was issued for all private citizens, anyone who had a sailing vessel, a boat of some kind, to take that vessel, large or small, a yacht, a fishing boat, and brave the treacherous English Channel. Now, if you've ever crossed it, I've crossed it many, many times, that's pretty rough water usually. I've been over it by hovercraft, on large boats and small boats and medium-sized boats, back and forth between the mainland of Europe and England. And man, it can be rough. I've been seasick more than once. 
But those soldiers were trapped there. And so this call went out. Anyone who has a boat. And two significant things happened. One, the waters of the English Channel remained calm so that even the smallest vessels who went were able to make it even though there was a lot of gunfire and bombing. But the second thing, and I think this is even more inexplicable, is that for some reason Hitler did not order an attack even though he was urged to do so by his generals. But he kept them at bay and kept them at bay for weeks, even though victory was in his grasp. He later scoffed, ah, he was just giving Churchill a sporting chance. But that wasn't his nature. And you've got to believe that the God who stopped the mouths of the lions in Daniel's day was somehow thwarting Adolf Hitler. Proverbs 21 reads that, Heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Well, meanwhile, a large number of allied troops were scrambling aboard these boats and yachts. On May 29, 47,000 were rescued. On May the 30th, 53,000. On May the 31st, 68,000. On June the 1st, 64,000. In all, 336,000 men found their way to safety. In the British Isles, and Britain regrouped, <coughs> preparing to defeat Hitler. And everybody in Britain was jubilant. And many of the even most secular, cynical writers called it a miracle. I'll say it again. I wonder how many times God wants to do something spectacular in our lives, but he doesn't because we simply don't ask. You do not have because you do not ask God. I think God wants to do some awesome stuff, but he wants us to boldly join with him, request it, and then be ready to engage in every part of that celebration. Lord, would you teach us to pray? Father, thank you for this amazing section of scripture. And it was the prayer life of Jesus that so intrigued the disciples. They wanted to know how it could be done. We need that today. Because we face disappointment in life, we face unbelievable stress at times, confusion, frustration. Every day holds its challenges. Oh, how we need to learn to pray. So I pray for every one of us, young and old, that you would stoke up our prayer life, bolster our desire to seek you in prayer, and may we see the power and the peace that comes from effective prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Rex, for that message. He teaches us to pray. At this time